Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto.Law, a.k.a. Kelman Law, is a New York law firm run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013 with expertise in litigation, dispute resolution, and anti-money laundering. Email them at info at kelman.law. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Welcome, Commissioner Peirce. Laura, it's great to be here. Last week, you proposed a three-year safe harbor period for token sales. Describe what that means and how the safe harbor period would work. The purpose of the safe harbor is to give projects three years to get from the point um, where they're ready to distribute their tokens to the point where those tokens are out in the hands of enough people to constitute a decentralized network or they're up and running and functioning as tokens in a functioning network. And so it essentially gives you a three-year hiatus from the securities laws during that period to allow you to do the transition. And so what problem are you trying to solve with this proposal? The problem that I've noticed is that um, token projects that want to get up and running want to do a distribution, and they worry about doing a distribution of any sort because they worry it's going to look like a securities offering. And so they, there are a lot of folks who are just not doing their offerings here in the U.S., or they're really hesitating about how, how to move forward because they're very worried about a potential uh, SEC enforcement action. And in your speech, you talked about how the SEC may have conflated the token with the investment contract. What do you mean by that? Well, it seems like when we talk about um, offerings in this space, we often talk about the token as if it's the security. And so really what it is, is the token is being wrapped in an investment contract. In some cases, it's being wrapped in an investment contract and it's being sold to people with, along with the notion that um, there's going to be this group that's going to build the network, and then your token is going to rise in value. That's sort of the promise that people are getting. But it's it's really important to remember that the token itself it can't be the security because then you could never have a functioning network where the token were being used as the coin of the realm on that network because it would always be a security and it would always have to transact be transacted just like any security would have to be would be transferred from one person to the next. 
So if we go back to the Howie case, for example, those people were buying a piece of an orange grove and they were also buying the management efforts of others when they, when they bought those um, pieces of the orange grove. But the, the plots in the orange grove weren't the securities and the oranges weren't the securities. It was that whole contract wrapped together that was the security. So there's one compliant route that has been taken by a couple of different teams, which is the Reggae Plus offering, otherwise known as the mini IPO. Why do you not think that this option is sufficient? Again, I, you know, I, I want people to have as many options as possible. And if that's an option that works for works well for people, I think that's great. I was excited to see that there were offerings moving through the Reg A plus route. What I wonder about is how do you get from the point where you have done a Reg A plus offering and then you want to get those tokens more widely distributed and being used in a network and not having to travel the way that securities would have to travel from one person to another. That's what I don't understand. And that's what I'm trying to solve for. Oh, so I think now there's something I misunderstood. So the Reg A plus offering would be the first step in the sale. And then the safe harbor period would be the three-year period after that. Well, you certainly could use a Reg A plus offering to do the first uh, the first piece of it, or you could raise venture capital and you could do your first development phasing phases using venture capital money, and then you could do your token offering, or you could do a token offering from the get go. I mean, you'd have to be fairly far along because you've got to have a code um, that's that's up and running that you can put up and that you can show people. So it's not like you can just throw up a white paper, but you you might have gotten your money in the first instance through some other channel. So to qualify for the safe harbor, the first condition that a token development team must meet is to make a good faith effort for the token network to reach network maturity. And you uh, define that as either decentralization or token functionality within three years after the first sale. How do you define decentralized or, um, you know, token functionality? Well, again, I mean, these are the same concepts that have, have been very difficult for people to grapple with. My, my uh, hope is that after three years, it's going to be much more obvious that a token is actually functioning in a network or that a network is widespread enough that enough people are using it, that there are enough, that there are enough nodes at that point that it's going to be obvious it's decentralized. So I just think the question becomes a much less gray area after three years. And again, I should note that this is a draft proposal. It's just me putting it out. And I'm really putting it out with the idea that people will come in and they'll give us feedback and say, yeah, this works, this doesn't work. And I think one of the initial pieces of feedback that I've heard is people are still wanting more guidance about what decentralized is going to look like even after three years. I just think it's going to be much more obvious once you've had that three-year period. So you don't have any kind of like um, metrics or thresholds in mind already? I don't. And it has the community offered any? Because I, I noticed that you solicited in your speech, you know, input. Have you? Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still pretty early days. So um, I'm, I'm, it's, it's less than a week. So I've gotten some feedback. Um, but I haven't gotten um, specific feedback on 
what those parameters should be. You know, we have some guidance out from the staff, which I imagine people could look to, but I'd, I'd like it to be a simpler question than trying to run through 40 different factors. So, um, you know, certainly, certainly I welcome input on that, on that concept, but I really do think it'll be so much easier to tell that you're, you're on one side of the line or the other after you've had three years of really trying to push it out into people's hands the hands of people who want to actually use the token. One other part that intrigued me was you said that being theoretically susceptible to a 51% attack would not keep a network from meeting that decentralized threshold. And then you said, quote, nor would the participation of the team in a network alteration achieved through a predetermined procedure in the source code that involves other network participants prevent a team from determining that the network is decentralized. And I, I know that sentence is a little bit difficult to parse uh, in a verbal format, but um, when I read it, it, what came to mind was something like the hard fork that Ethereum instituted after the DAO attack. Is that mm -hmm. what you had in mind? Well, what I had in mind is that, you know, if you set out your if if you set out the way that you the way that the code will work and how it could be forked if if participants in the network decide to change it it's not going to kick you out the fact that the 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 team that initiated the network is participating on the same terms as everyone else in making those decisions is not going to kick you out of 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 the safe harbor Okay. It's not going to kick you out. It's not going to kick you out of being decentralized, I should say, or, or and, and of, of being able to, to qualify as a non-security. And, and that's because of this phrase here where you said that that alteration involves other network participants, meaning, you know, it's, it's not just the team developing the token, but then also, for instance, maybe like miners and users who are behind that decision. Is that what you meant by that? It is. So what I'm trying to say is if you're the if you're the initial team and you retain the right to unilaterally make changes, then it looks pretty centralized. But if you're part of the team and you're just one piece of the team, just like one piece of the network, just like anyone else, it looks a lot more decentralized to me. So you don't have to pull back and say, I'm not going to be involved in the network anymore at all. You can be involved on the same terms as other people. And I, and, and when I'm, when I look at that, I would still look at it and say it's decentralized. In a moment, we'll discuss more about the conditions of Commissioner Purse's safe harbor proposal. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com. Have you seen the MZO Visa card? A metal card loaded with perks, up to 5% back and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? Crypto.com has recently launched its exchange and crypto fundraising platform, The Syndicate. There was a 50% off Atom listing event on February 12th, 2020. Sign up on the Crypto.com exchange now. Crypto.law is run by crypto OGs in New York who understand crypto and fintech. They were already operating in the space back in 2013 and they accept crypto as payment. 
One of the partners, Zachary Kilman, is known for drafting a bill submitted to the U.S. Congress in 2014 aimed at exempting on-chain Bitcoin transactions from U.S. regulations. The other founding partner, his brother Daniel Kilman, became well-known in the crypto law space for his work in the Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation. So if you operate a fintech business or have a dispute with some person or business involving crypto, or you just need legal advice related to crypto, info at kelman.law. That's K-E-L-M-A-N dot law, or just go to their website at www.crypto.law. When you think crypto, think Kelman. Back to my conversation with SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Another requirement that you mentioned is that the token development team would have to make certain disclosures. What would those be? The disclosures would, there'd be a range of disclosures, but including who's on the team, what your plans, what, what your plans are for the network, how you plan to achieve those plans. You'll have to disclose what the experience of your, of your team is. Um, you'll have to disclose if the team members start selling, um, their tokens. So if you hit 5%, you'll have to disclose that. Um, every time you, you sell 5% of your tokens, you'll have to, you'll have to disclose it. So there are a range of, of, um, disclosures that are intended and then the code and it's intended to, to give people what they're interested in when they're considering whether to make a a token purchase. And it's also intended to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the projects that are really trying to do something and those that are just trying to raise money and run to make sure that the ones that are trying to raise money and run wouldn't find this an attractive route to go. And I should say one, one key piece is that there's the backup of um, you're still subject to the anti-fraud laws, the part of the securities laws that governs fraud. So you, you don't get a complete free pass from the securities laws um, that you can't lie to people. Yeah, well, I did actually see one um, critical response. I mean, there were multiple, but there was one in particular that said that they thought that your proposal would (laughs) result in a flourishing of the scams that we saw in the ICO phase, um, you know, basically like a free pass. And I was just curious for your response. I'm assuming it's something along the lines of what you just said, but but I wanted to ask you this question yeah, I, directly. I, I saw that critique too. And I think that my point is we're trying to ad- both address the concern, I think legitimate concerns that people have had about this space, um, that there isn't a lot of information and that people don't really know what they're buying or, or who's behind these projects and what those people's plans are. Um, but also address the, 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 uh, concern from legitimate teams that are really trying to build something and are perfectly willing to be transparent about what they build um, to let them put out there what they're trying to do and then and then sell their tokens. So I take issue with that criticism because I think this this tries to um, exactly address what what the concerns are underlying that criticism. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a similar thought, um, but at the same time. It is true that I've also interviewed people who held ICOs in kind of when, I guess, when you would call the mania around crypto mm-hmm. assets really had built up in 2017, but it was sort of the um, the follow-on crowd where it was people who weren't necessarily like trying to create new business models and had like a really 
um, you know, that, that we're really using the, um, I guess, distinct features of crypto tokens to create something new, but we're instead just kind of glomming on and using them as a way to raise money. And, you know, they thought they had a kind of a justification for using it. But just knowing what I know about the space, I was like, mm, you know, I, I see through this and I feel like you really are using it to raise money. But but they seemed like very earnest and to really believe that what they were doing was not that. So I think that's the one gray area where I'm like, hmm, I wonder how those would fare under the safe harbor period. Um, but But maybe what would happen is that, you know, those wouldn't end up taking off and wouldn't meet the decentralized or, um, the, you know, the, the thresholds that you outlined, uh, you know, for functional tokens. Um, but I did wonder what would happen to tokens that don't meet those thresholds? Well, so I think the three-year period is long enough that as you're approaching that three-year period, you would kind of know whether you're going to hit it or not. You would know whether your tokens are out there being uh, in the hands of lots of people and being used by lots of people and whether your network is functional. And so you can prepare either to register your, your securities going forward, or you can prepare to, you know, if you want to shut your, your network down, you could do that as well. But my guess is that at that point, most people would, would register with the SEC. Sort of similar, similar to what we've required in some of our enforcement settlements with with folks. And one other condition that you had here that I wanted to ask about was you require that the team make a good faith effort to provide liquidity for users. And you say that you expect that this condition will surprise some people because the SEC views attempts to facilitate secondary trading as indications of a security offering. So why did you decide to make this a condition? I think if you can't um, transfer tokens from one person to another, then you're really minimizing the ability of the network to grow, of those network effects to happen. So I imagine that developers might get paid in the token, and then they'll want to cash out some of that for uh, fiat or another crypto. And so you need to allow them a way to do that. Um, And so I think that the the focus on on secondary trading as being negative, it just it doesn't make sense here because you really do want to make sure that those tokens are are widely dispersed to people who actually want to use them. And also, there are some states such as Wyoming and Colorado that have already exempted certain crypto transactions from securities laws. So, how would your proposal, if it were to go through, how would that affect these state level laws? I think that's an interesting point, and it's one I need to think more about. I mean, you know, typically we think of the securities law, the federal securities laws as, as governing anything that that's crossing state lines. And so I am not entirely sure how those state-level um, exemptions work, but I'm happy to talk with, with people in those states to make sure that, that the two approaches are consistent. You know, right now, the way it's written is is if someone applied for this uh, or, or said that that they were taking advantage of this safe harbor, then you would get uh, automatic preemption from state laws. And so it may be that this would just be, you know, both would be consistent. They'd be, we'd be preempting, but they would also on the state level be saying our state laws don't apply. 
And since you've released your proposal, how have the other commissioners and SEC staff received the proposal? Do they seem receptive? Uh, you know, I've gotten some positive feedback. I think that I still have work to do. And, and part of the reason that I wanted to release this was so that I could get good feedback from the community of people who would be interested in using it. And then, you know, make, make sure that it's workable from that perspective and then be able to take it to my fellow commissioners and say, all right, look, I think I'm addressing the concerns that you have, which are, again, legitimate concerns. But I think I have a way to both address those concerns and to allow the good projects to move forward the way they want to. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still recognizing that I have work to do, but I'm optimistic that I can make progress on that front. Since your tenure is up in June, if the commissioners did decide they wanted to institute this proposal, what would need to happen and how long would it take? Uh, Well, I should say that my tenure is up in June. It's typical for commissioners to be able to stay on um, past their tenure if the spot isn't filled. If it's filled, obviously, I have to move on. So I don't know when my departure um, date is. But in any event, I think that this is something that whether regardless of whether I'm here or not, I think the the need for this kind of gap filler is there. And so I'm hopeful that having it out there will um, will allow people to work with it and 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 refine it and reform it into something that would work. But, you know, if it were to go the way I have it structured now, it's a rule. And so if it were to move forward, it would need to go out as a proposal and then it would need to to be adopted. And that process can take some time. And would it involve, does it just involve the SEC deciding to do it or does it it also? Okay. And when you say some time, would it be a year or? So typically what happens is when you put out a a proposal, you have a 60 or 90 day comment period, and then you can adopt off that. So, you know, you can kind of do the math and see that it's, it's certainly not an overnight thing. Um, one other approach that I suggested was possible would be to do no action relief at the commission level. And that's something that you could do much more quickly. So those are two options. But again, as people in the crypto space know, everything in, in government takes a long time. And so um, I, I thought it was really important to get this out there, to get people talking and thinking about what something like this would look like. And then we can go from there. And I should note that, you know, as is obvious from this discussion, all the views that I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Yeah. Um, speaking of the crypto community, um, people definitely, uh, by and large, had a positive reception and were sending their love to you, crypto mom. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think this is definitely something, you know, people are talking about and, and at least in some parts of the community are excited about. Well, and what I appreciate is that and what I think is is so nice about this community is that I know that people are giving me really constructive feedback too. It's not just um, crypto mom, we love you. It's it's crypto mom, you got this wrong, and let's show you how to fix it. And that's really what I'm looking for is is people to weigh in. I'm by no means an expert in this area, and I know that there are people out there who are and who will have a sense of of what needs to change and and what looks like it would work. 
you're close enough to an expert that when I was reading the proposal, I, I felt it, it was actually pretty thoughtful and considered, you know, obviously it's not like super filled out, but like the basic lines are there, I feel. So. Well, that's good. I'm glad it's a good start. <laughs> well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks for having me, Laura. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Hi, everyone. Greetings from Denver, where I flew risking coronavirus. For those of you who saw my Twitter poll, even though 40% of people uh, responded to the poll saying that they would wear a flight face mask on the flight, Almost nobody on the flight was. In fact, I think I only saw two people and they were wearing the surgical face masks, which don't really do anything. Although I guess maybe they prevent you from touching some parts of your face. Anyway, I'm here at ETH Denver and we'll be doing a fireside chat with two of the most crypto friendly governors in the US and we'll release that conversation next week on Unconfirmed. As always, thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, getting more bullish. Larry Cermak of the blog tweeted several interesting charts saying, quote, the sentiment has drastically changed in January, in my opinion. His first bit of evidence is that spot trading is up 70% from last month to a five-month high. Perpetual swap volume in January on BitMEX is up 55% to an eight-month high. And web traffic to crypto exchanges is up for the first time since April. Check out the full tweet storm for all the indicators. We'll see how February goes. Second headline, all the ways to value crypto assets. Coinmetrics is conducting a comprehensive review of all the methods for valuing crypto networks. This week, they rolled out part one, which covers the equation of exchange, MV equals PQ, discounted future utility models, Metcalf's law, price regression models, and more. They conclude, quote, the Dutch East India Company, founded in 1602, was the first corporate entity to issue bonds and shares to the public, and in doing so, became the world's first formally listed public company. It then took a period of over 300 years for the necessary foundational concepts to be developed until the formal discipline of the equity valuation was established in the 1930s. With crypto assets, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and substantial progress has been made over the past 10 years in the emergent field of crypto asset valuation research. Third headline, China's blockchain plans. The Chamber of Digital Commerce dig digs up all 84 patents by China regarding blockchain technology and had them translated to English. Based on its review of the patents, the Financial Times reports, quote, China may plan to algorithmically adjust the supply of a central bank digital currency based on certain triggers, such as loan interest rates. Some outline mechanisms to allow customers to make deposits with their existing banks and then exchange that for digital currency. 
dot, dot, dot. Other patents are focused on building digital currency chip cards or digital currency wallets that banking customers could potentially use, which would be linked directly to their bank accounts. The article also quotes one expert, Mark Kaufman, a partner and patent attorney at Ramon Law, who says, quote, most of the patents have to do with integrating digital currency into existing banking infrastructure. Next headline, an inside look at crypto scams. Paul Vigna of the Wall Street Journal did a great feature on how cryptocurrency scams took in more than $4 billion in 2019. In it, we meet one victim of the Plus Token scam, a Korean man who got into crypto via Plus Token, putting $86,000 into crypto within five months and losing everything. Weirdly, the scammers used Prince Charles to promote their coin by showing images of the so-called founder of Plus Token, a supposedly former Google employee named Leo, shaking hands with the British heir to the throne. Next headline, JP Morgan may merge Quorum with Consensus. Reuters reported that such a deal may be announced within the next six months, though it's unclear whether the 25 people who work on Quorum will join Consensus. Preston Byrne tweeted, quote, Consensus and JP Morgan are not merging. My guess is that all that's happening here is handing over control of a GitHub repo to save face on JPM's side and to get a cool press release on Consensus's side. My only comment here is that if you've been to both the Consensus and the JP Morgan offices, then the idea of these two office cultures being mashed together is pretty hilarious. Next headline. How Chainalysis Cornered the Federal Government Market for a Blockchain Analytics Software. Coindesk wrote up a good feature on Chainalysis and how it is the blockchain analysis provider most used by the federal government, with $10.7 million spent on its tools. The biggest customers include the IRS, the FBI, and surprisingly, ICE. Now for fun bits. How Backed plans to make all our points spendable. I missed this feature on Fortune last week, which is about Bax plans for its reward wallet, but it's worth a read for understanding the vision that Bact has for its consumer-facing app. The feature begins, Wouldn't it be great if you could open a digital wallet and view the sum total of all your rewards programs for hotels, pharmacies, and bank cards all in one place, converted into cash? Then you could spend all those thousands of unused airline miles as dollars to buy an Apple Watch or take your spouse to dinner at the corner pizzeria. Loyalty points you don't even know you have, the average American has more than a dozen rewards programs, are suddenly as spendable as the bucks in your checking account just by scanning your rewards app at the checkout counter. One of the main challenges to bringing this fruition, this vision to fruition will be persuading merchants to accept payment via the backed app. It'll be interesting to see how the company's efforts go. All right, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Commissioner Purse and her safe harbor proposal, be sure to check the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, then why not sign up for The Real Deal, the weekly newsletter I publish every Friday. Some of you have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned on the show, and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.